This is a Bulldog Radio podcast. So, 9 and 10 of The Last Dance. Boys, I know we had some technical difficulties Tuesday. Um, I sound different. I got a new mic, so that's kind of cool. So, everything, you know, is coming. Everything's coming together, especially during these crazy times. Yes, sir, man. Like, it's been, obviously, man, like, everything going on with the protests and COVID. It's been a crazy time, but, uh, you know, thankfully, we're all still here. We have a platform to air our opinion for these great last two episodes it was a great way to end it i can't wait to hop into it very excited yeah definitely glad that we can still do this regardless it's nice that we have like an outlet where we still have the stuff we can talk about despite what's going on in the world so i can't wait to get into it let's get into it yeah absolutely so episode nine starts off basically um you know we come off like the pacers being introduced off episode eight and um you know, the Reggie Miller and MJ battle starts and basically they talk about, you know, David Aldridge says, you know, Reggie Miller was different because he didn't really, he wasn't feared, but he didn't fear Michael Jordan like the rest of the league did. And, uh, I mean, it, it showed like you could see the gameplay where he was just attacking him, attacking him, even when he was young, you know, kind of what Jordan did when he entered the league, like he didn't really care. He just wanted to attack and attack people. Um, you know, MJ even said himself, and then Joe leaves us. Um, okay. Oh my god. Uh, MJ. <laughs> okay. Yeah, MJ even said himself um, outside of Detroit that the Pacers were the toughest team. You know, yeah. just because of their physicality and stuff like that. So uh, I thought it was, I thought just the relationship introduced right at the start was a good way to um, kick episode nine off. Definitely. I think I agree with Jordan's standpoint on that because the Pacers were the only team during the 90s when they were winning their championships to give them a seven-game series. And honestly, when you look at it, that's a series the Pacers should have won being up by 13 in Game 7 at the United Center in Chicago. So it was just a great matchup. You had Mark Jackson, one of the greatest passers of all time, Rick Smith down there, the Davis boys, Reggie Miller, one of the great top three greatest shooters in the history of the NBA. So it was definitely a series that pushed the Bulls like all the way to the breaking point. It was just back and forth. And uh, definitely I love the way how Reggie uh, was never scared of Mike. But he said after um, Mike scored 45 on him in the preseason game, he said he always called him Black Cat or Black Jesus afterwards. So it was always a respect level. Yeah, for sure. And like I I know personally myself like I didn't actually know how good Reggie Miller really was. I knew he was a really good analyst. I didn't really watch him that much growing up. And then like seeing all of his – his highlights on this documentary and then watching some more afterwards. I forgot, like, Reggie Miller was a very good basketball player. He could shoot the three really well. He was not afraid of anybody, just like all these people, just like you guys were talking about. MJ was feared by, pretty much feared by everybody except Reggie Miller. He had that, almost that kind of that same mentality that he was confident he could go against anybody. And that Pacer team, like you're right, Travis, they could have won that series in Game 7. They had it in their hands, and they just let it slip eventually to the Bulls. And, I mean, it's just crazy to see that all of these players on these teams, they didn't have, like, they didn't have like a Jordan-type figure. Their closest was Reggie Miller, but they had a really almost team-like 
team bonded organization where it was kind of more like the Pistons where they didn't have like this big time superstar. They had a lot of camaraderie guys that were really team players that could really get the job done. And it, it was amazing to see that like MJ and them said that the Pacers were the next hard, hardest opponent compared to the bad boys. And that just gives them a lot of credit that they were one of the more underrated teams in that era. Yeah. And Reggie Miller, you, you know, you talk about him being a guy who came out of here and he was younger, but he didn't really care about really what Jordan was. Um, you know, game three clutch, or I'm sorry, game four, very clutch three. Uh, I know they talked about him doing like a push off. I yeah. think maybe in today's game that gets called, of course, you know, then he probably doesn't make that move, you know, to push off. Uh, but still, I mean, the off balance three really wasn't something that people were doing. I don't think like a fadeaway three, you know, back then, like I feel like three pointing three point shooting was, you know, it was there, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like the go-to option. I don't know. We see like Jordan become like the guy who kind of breaks the way for shooting kind of along with uh, Mark Price. Then, you know, they, you know, you talk about them going into that game seven. Um, I didn't really agree with the statement. What Reggie Miller said about, you know, game seven, you throw everything out the window. I kind of thought that was, you know, that's what losers say. Really. I think like if, yeah. you know, if you're a winner, you know, you stick to your game plan and, um, you, you know, you get the job done. I think that's how you get, you know, that's the difference between, and he talked about championship DNA. Um, that's what they had, uh, the bulls. That's what they being the bulls. That's what they had. And Re Re Reggie Miller said himself, they didn't have that uh, at the time. Yeah. And I still think in a way it was sort of a young team, even though Re Reggie himself was a veteran in his 11th season at the time. And going back to the shot in game four, you were talking about, that was definitely a push off. That was an offensive foul. It should have been called. I love Reggie Miller, but I feel like if that was any other player, you could have got away with it. But the fact he got away with it by pushing Michael Jordan is just amazing. Another thing they show in that clip, Jordan still gets a, a chance to win the game and it like rattles around the rim off the glass and almost goes in. That would have been an incredible uh, game winner. But going to your point for game seven, basically the series was back and forth and every home, every home game, the home team won. So the Bulls were 4-0 at home and the Pacers were 3-0 at home. So I think to your point there, they just lacked the confidence after losing already three in the United Center. And now they got to play a game seven in the United Center. And Michael Jordan made a promise saying they were going to win no matter what. So I do think they should have a better mentality. And it was a game that they really should have won. They only lost the game 88 to 83. And that just shows you how great defense was back then. Because now teams average 100 to 110 points per game. So um, I think that like set the stage for Reggie to get better. And he obviously made the finals two years later. But they just weren't ready for those uh, moments to get past a veteran team like the Bulls. It's tough for, I mean, any team to really go into a play game, especially for the Bulls. They have great fans. They are home to the greatest basketball player to ever live. And when you have fans like that that are so excited, so ready to see them play, and to go into that hostile environment, I mean, for both teams it's tough. But when, especially when you kind of have don't have the home court advantage when you've been doing so well at home in such a big game, Game 7, I mean, it's really tough for you to even – I put up a fight at that point. But like you said, Travis, they really good. They had really good defense. But, I mean, it's always tough to go into a visiting atmosphere. Yeah, going into a different crowd is definitely, especially one that very much dislikes you, especially when we get into the Jazz um, series as well, where their environment was very hostile as well. 
But going on to your point, um, Barrett, about the push-off and Travis as well, like, yeah, I believe in this league. If I, if you imagine, like, Marcus Smart guarding Reggie Miller and then the little push-off, you'd probably be over half court on the ground, and that'd probably <laughs> be a problem because there's a, there's just a lot of flopping and acting in this year in this NBA just because I guess it's more evolved into that sort of game. But in the, in the end, I do kind of agree with Reggie in the sense that Game 7, you kind of – throw everything out the window but I I mean you obviously have to be in mind what you what got you to game seven what got you W's in the series you kind of have to stick with that I think he was kind of more saying you have to be ready to do anything because game seven you're going to scrap for every inch every basket every rebound every 50-50 ball to give your team a chance to move on to the next round eventually to the finals I think that's more of kind of what he was going on. And, I mean, that's really what you have to do, especially in these game sevens. It's not not everything's going to be drawn up just like the whiteboard in the locker room. It's going to change dramatically because teams are going to do whatever it takes to win the game. Yeah, I, I think maybe I, I read it as him, you know, him saying, I you know, throw everything out the window. Um, I just thought, like, maybe you, you're right. <laughs> stick to the game plan. Stick to what you want to do. Obviously, you didn't – you're not – it's not, you know, 3-0, you know. If it was 3-0 and you were on the brink of elimination, yeah, throw everything out the window, go yes, back sir. to the drawing board. Um, but yeah. you're right. They got wins. This is a game seven. But you mentioned the Utah Jazz, you know, that atmosphere. Uh, the documentary then jumps us back to or takes us back to 1997 where they meet them for the finals. And um, I didn't know. I knew Carl Malone was good, but I didn't know that Carl Malone was – good enough to steal yeah. an MVP from MJ and Carl Malone is calling the stream right now. But, um, yeah. I so <laughs> I, I thought it was, I thought it was, um, I don't know why, like they didn't really talk about it that much to where, uh, <laughs> they didn't talk Sorry. about it enough. No, you're good. They didn't talk about it enough to where I didn't know why he did, you know, I give me the numbers of what Carl Malone did compared to MJ because MJ was number one option in this offense. I believe Carl Malone was the number one offense uh, option in he was. Jazz's offense. I know they had Stockton at the time, but you know he was more known for his passing. So I thought that was interesting. Then we get into like the the whole, basically the meme of Jordan saying, "Well, I took that. That's personal. That's personal." <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, you're good. Oh no, like Barrett, I completely agree with you. I think at the time Malone was definitely the second best player in the league, and. Jordan being as competitive as he is, he just needs like a little bit, you know, of anything just like to get that edge. And this is honestly the series where we find out the truth about the flu game. So mm -hmm. literally, you, we can make a case. Utah tried to kill Michael Jordan. So first of all, Jordan, I just don't agree with the aspect of, so he wants to get a pizza. Fine. Like you're hungry. I love pizza too. It's cool. So I believe his trainer, Tim Grover and all of them, like they get a pizza and five guys come to the door. I don't know about you guys. Anytime I order a pizza, it's usually just one person. You know, I don't know. But that's when you knew something should have been up. And honestly, you should have just had somebody else calling the pizza that it wasn't for Michael Jordan. And he felt sick. And that, that's messed up by Utah for even doing that. But I just think finding out the truth about that is just messed up. They were literally trying to get him sick just to win. Like, that's insane. I mean, five, like, five guys coming to the, like – I've delivered pizza and it's weird like just to even think about having someone else come up to the door with me even like if it's like mm. a friend that I'm delivering it to and like I have other friends that know them that are working there it's like and it's a little sus not gonna lie but <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, 
I mean, Utah, we've seen their atmosphere and their fans are pretty hostile. So, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't put it past them if they tried to, but. I mean, could you have imagined if MJ would have signed the pizza box and gave it back to them where it would probably sell on eBay? Like, literally, it would have been oh, just yeah. on eBay, yeah. thousands of thousands of dollars. But, like, absolutely, the Jazz were on a very, very good team. They had the mailman, like you said, Barry. He was one of the key parts of that team. They had John Stockton, the all-time assist leader. They had Jeff Hornacek as well, who's a really good shooter. They also had Brian Russell, who, you know, MJ kind of felt was not as very good as he, he perceived himself as, but... <laughs> I mean, ending up in the series, you could just see that these two teams were very well matched, going back and forth constantly. Environment was a big key, especially in Utah, when we kind of, not to jump ahead too much, but when the Michaels kids are introduced, when they were talking about the 98 finals, that the, their mom didn't want them to go to Utah due to the environment. And that just speaks for itself how crazy that environment would be. You could see all the, the fans that are all on the streets like three, four, five hours before game time, just parading and ready for it to, ready to go. But, I mean, this the whole pizza thing, I'm, I was really surprised that it wasn't the flu game because that's what we've referenced it as the last 20 years is the mm-hmm. flu game, the flu, yeah. the flu game. It's like, wait, pizza? Bad pizza. This is what this was all about, and there was nothing to do with the flu. But that can just tell you how, like my point was on the last show, that media – We'll jump at the bit to get any sort of information as possible, and they'll make assumptions to get a story out. And sometimes they don't turn out what they can seem like. But I mean, five guys delivering a pizza. I mean that, and there's only one place open. It. I could definitely agree with this trainer that yeah, it, there would have been some bad stuff that definitely could have happened, and it did. But MJ still powered through it, and that just shows you how much of a competitor he was. Yeah, and Tim Grover, it's easy for him to say, oh, man, I had a bad feeling about it. After all this happened, like, cool, you can say that. I don't know if I really credit that at the time. Um, I saw something floating on Reddit that Utah Jazz, like, gave some money to that pizza place. I don't think that's – I part of me feels that like, that's true. The other part of me feels like it's not because Jerry Sloan, who – I don't know how you don't know this, even watching – Jordan, you know, I didn't know he was sick. How do you not know he's sick? Like, everyone knew he's looking like a ghost on the court. He's, like, weak uh, as all get out on the bench. Every time out, he's, like, just collapsing on the bench. Like, how do you not know that? Um, I guess maybe in, you know, a very high-pressure situation, you're not really looking at your opponent. But um, to go back to, like, what you said about the five guys, like, delivering the pizza, um, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, that's kind of out, that's out of the box. I would never expect that to happen unless you were. I mean, they knew. I mean, they knew it was Jordan. Like they knew they were delivering it to Jordan. So, yeah. You know, hey, you have once in a lifetime opportunity to maybe meet Michael Jordan, delivering him. You know, just you know a pizza. So um, I don't know. Discredit like Grover for thinking that. Oh, I had a bad feeling about it. Yeah, I did. I like. Yeah, you could say that if you said that like right after. Like if you were saying that in the documentary, like when they were filming it, like an original like film. Yeah. But like after the fact, I don't, I don't really believe that. Um, but I, you're right. He powers through, he gets the, he gets the job done. But I kind of thought like Jerry Sloan was kind of like a fraud for saying like, well, you know what? There is no social media, but I, I don't know how you don't know that. Like the, one of the best players like in the league is, is like not her. He's at his full potential. Like, I don't know how that even works. Plus, like, no, Bear, I completely agree with you on that because he's literally, like, 
slouched down. Like he just looks like he's just coming in hungover. Like that was another yeah. story that they thought they thought like Jordan just went out and had too much. Like Scotty was literally carrying him the whole game. It was just I mean, I just can't believe Utah really did that. But obviously, like you said, Brandon, he powered through and had, you know, the iconic flu game, thirty eight points and hit um the, the go ahead three which sealed the game and I mean, that's just a testament to, you know, why he's the greatest player to ever play this game because he was able to battle through. That was a 64-win Utah team, 64-18 and um, 18 that year. So that was just really impressive. And Carl Malone winning the MVP, I do believe Jordan should have got it that year. I know they couldn't just keep giving him the MVP, but Malone was a really good player, and he's actually second all-time in scoring. So and was Stockton all-time assist leader. It was just, just a great series. And, um... I mean, my, my favorite part from my love when uh, Steve Kerr, you know, after he hits the game-winning shot, you know, his uh, little speech at the uh, um, at the parade. Oh, yeah. when he says after <laughs> I thought, he, that, was, and I he thought goes, that was so funny. Yeah, and he goes like, yeah, I mean, he's like, Michael usually feels uncomfortable in these situations. I go, well, Phil, I just got to bail him out again. That was just perfect. That was perfect. That's pretty funny. I mean, you would kind of think that in the greatest player to ever play the game, arguably, there's different opinions and stuff like that. But for the greatest player to ever play the game, I mean, when he has the flu, he's obviously not going 100%. You can definitely probably tell being there that he's not doing stuff that he would usually be doing and stuff. And when he's just saying that, oh, I didn't know and stuff, that's kind of, like I said, a little sus. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Harper even said, sure. like, Harper even said he looked chalky white. Like he was, like, looking like he was dead, he said. I'm like. I don't know how you. Bro, don't they were see literally, that. they were literally trying to kill him. Like I, like I don't. Like, I don't I think mean, they. Man, it doesn't get more. I mean, I don't know. you never know. Five, Go ahead, Brandon. Go five. ahead, Brandon. I'm sorry. I mean, I if you admit that, you're probably going to go to jail. So I guess they're probably never going to tell if oh, you yeah, actually. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, going on like I believe it was um the center, I, um Bill Wellington said like every time MJ came over to the sideline for a timeout, he it just looked like the life was sucked out of him. And mm-hmm. I can I have a. T- could attest to that i've actually played with like a flu before and it is it's extremely hard because you're you like scotty said you can always find that little bit of something you didn't think you'd have for in those moments where you kind of have enough energy to pull it out but when you're really like in that situation where your your body is just depleted you're having to having to play with the flu your body systems aren't working to the function they normally are you're pretty much just scrapping for everything you can and every time you get a timeout you're pretty much just going to suck as much air as you can and just stay really still and just make sure that you're going to have enough energy to go for the next 60 seconds, even though in a normal game, you're like, oh, it's been four minutes. I'm fine. And when it's like, it just shows like, I was like, Jordan, how, how did he do that? I really don't know. It's, it's just truly amazing. The fact that like the trainer was telling him that he shouldn't even play, like literally like before the game, he's like, you shouldn't play. And there's, his mom was like, you shouldn't play. And he's like, well, I have to do it. I have to do it for the city. I have to do it for the team. Mm-hmm. And that just really, he's a true competitor and he wants to do the best for the city and win it for Chicago and his teammates. And in the end, I mean, 38 points with the flu, that's just flat out incredible. Like some guys won't even get that much regular healthy throughout their entire careers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, him, obviously I think just cause we knew Michael through all these episodes that you knew he was going to play. I believe that was the mantra of throughout his whole career that he was going to play no matter what. I mean, going back to all the way to North Carolina where he or when he left the Bulls, go to North Carolina and play pickup basketball on a like a broken foot. So yeah, I don't think there's no stopping him from leaving. That's why I kind of think like Pippen's kind of soft when he gets hurt because then he kind of like shuts down. Yeah. I know we talk about the migraine, and I maybe that's why like he's kind of upset that he was portrayed. But Joe, you talked about or just Travis. I'm sorry, talking about. 
Steve Kerr, his speech. Um, I didn't know a lot about Steve Kerr. I liked him just as a coach that he is right now. I liked him even more after learning about his, you know, his upbringing, um, his relationship with his parents. I thought it was, you know, I thought he's, I mean, he's a nice guy. He's very well-spoken, uh, especially in all these settings. We talked about the speech. I thought that was, you know, really cool. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really sad though, that his, you know, his parents had kind of, or his dad had passed away doing something that he had loved. Um, his, pre- his professor, for those who don't know, was a professor at the, he was American university in Baru and he, mm-hmm. you know, was apparently the guy before then beforehand was, he was murdered, I think. Yeah. Kidnapped and murdered. So I don't know if there was like, I'm not saying like, Hey, like probably should have got out of there, but you know, that was what he wanted to do. You know, teach those kids, um, in like the middle East, which was, you know, I get it, but you know, it's kind of sad. Um, I, the theme that I wrote down here was that a lot of these players that were on the bulls had come from hardship and they used basketball to escape. Um, I mean, Jordan, you can make a case for Pippen, Robin and Kerr. Kerr, obviously he knew he was a role player throughout his, his whole, you know, basically his whole career, you know, obviously not getting any offers, out of high school and um, you know, just not being like a Michael Jordan esque player, but I I definitely like Steve Kerr more after, you know, hearing his whole, his whole past. Definitely. And I grew a lot of more respect for Steve Kerr too. I already, already had liked him, but just knowing his past and, you know, him and Michael, you know, both their fathers were murdered. He said they never talked about it, but in a way they like kind of bonded better, especially after the fight that we talked about episode seven and eight. And that's where, like, Michael just developed more of a trust for him. And in that scenario, Michael knew the double team was coming. He was like, you know, I just need – we all need you. The whole, you know, city of Chicago needs you to hit the game-winning shot. And Kerr didn't. It was just a level of trust. And Kerr, even though he knew his job, he knew when he had to play, you know, he had some big shots. And Kerr, so, like, I gained a lot more respect in his journey, like, to get where he was. And, like, Scotty, like you were saying, and others. It's just truly amazing. Not getting offered to his um, senior year than – overcoming that and he's honestly just a true winner he has eight overall championships which is amazing i mean and he had those shots i mean in season two but i mean it's kind of cool to see that unspoken bond that him and michael had i mean both with very similar uh events that very similar traumatic events that happened in their lives and kind of just the trust that they had just not only by experiencing those events but also just kind of growing and kind of experience those things with kind of the anger that they felt with that and just the confusing emotions but i mean when you see it i mean even in today with steve kirk he's a guy who's loved by his players loved by the city that he coaches i mean he's just a guy who i feel like just gives the best for his players and stuff like that but i mean it's just really cool to kind of see the relationship that they both had as well as uh the relationships that he tries to carry on with his players today absolutely like we we, we see Steve Kerr all like common in like the media or watching the games today as a coach. He's a really kind of a funny guy. And then going back to the speech, saying, oh, I got to bail Michael out again, I guess, mm-hmm. after he hit the game-winning shot, which is probably one of my favorite videos to this day. I don't know why. It's just so funny every time. But like then we, we also see like this side of Steve where he's like just kind of like like Dennis and Scotty and these guys that are just grinding to get somewhere not only in basketball, but just in life, especially when he was at Arizona and then his dad passed away. Like that's a really traumatic thing. And you're, you're, you just get to Arizona. You're on a high note. You finally made it to college basketball. And then something like that happens. It's, it could be really hard 
to really get your life back around. And then Steve Kurt, he ends up making it to the NBA. And one of the big things that I took out of this, like this documentary with Steve Kerr is like, he was the perfect role player for what he was doing, like coming off the bench, being that role player. He knew his role. He did it very well. He came in when the team needed a little bit of a spark, needed some shooting, could knock down the three ball as good as anybody else on the team. He was a really dynamic player. And when he came, when he was needed, he was ready for the call. He had his hands up. He was ready. And then game six, we see how that resulted, end up hitting one of the biggest shots in the series. And just, just the level of respect for Steve Kerr is just you know, an absolutely incredible thing. I mean, just looking at his resume, I mean, ending, he ends up winning another championship after the Bulls dynasty, and now he already has over two with the Warriors as a coach. I mean, the guy knows how to win, and he knows how to be a part of winning organizations, and that shows how, like, excuse me, how how respected he is in the in the basketball community. Yeah, and I think it's just fortunate for him. You know, he has this great career. Um, he looked up to Paxton during those years with the Bulls. You know, before he joined them. And yeah. he said he even mentioned that he was very fortunate for him to have basically Paxson to take him under his wing because, you know, Paxson was basically going out when Kerr was coming in. And, uh, I mean, you can make comparisons. They're, like, kind of the same player. Um, yeah. you know, hits big shots in the moments. White guy who can shoot. Um, so I thought it was, <laughs> you know, I thought it was uh, good to talk about Kerr. You know, the episode wraps up. You know, they win that championship. They go to the, They do the speech. You know, everyone's laughing. And then they, it's transitions um, to them talking about Gus Lett. And I thought this was actually a really cool thing about how they talked about his bodyguards and um, basically how, you know, Gus was his guy after his father passed away. And, you know, Gus and his wife had talked about how, or I guess, I think he had passed away. I don't know. Did they mention, he did. He, yeah, okay. And they mentioned him passing away. So, you know, it was good to hear from his wife talking about how, you know, Gus, you know, would go over to MJ's hotel or wherever he was staying uh, at the time, you know, when Michael was breaking down at two in the morning, just just to be that emotional crutch for Gus, um, or I'm sorry, for Michael. I thought Gus did a really good job, and it was, I think we should have highlighted maybe the entire entourage. I know we talked about Gus because he had such a significant impact on Michael, but you know, we talked about the the guy. You know, they're playing quarters. Uh, a couple episodes we talked about. Yeah. I thought like they should do a whole little episode on like the whole uh, entourage. What they call them? the stiff, the stiff brothers, something like that. Yeah. So yeah, I thought I thought it was good to talk about that. But I mean, we could talk about. I would watch a whole episode on just the whole bodyguards. You know, I'm sure they got a ton of stories. Definitely, and Jordan seemed like those were like he loved his teammates, but those seemed like more of his friends like than anything and one thing about Jordan people might say you know he's a bad teammate or bad leader by the way he talks Jordan is a loyal friend and the stuff he did for Gus and all the bodyguards just as a testament to he actually is a good person just if you're in his circle he's going to be loyal when Gus was going through I believe it was cancer can somebody correct me if I'm wrong yeah lung lung cancer thank you and when he Jordan paid for all of his procedures and Jordan was giving money to the family, just anything they needed to make sure he was getting by. And it was it was hurting Jordan that he couldn't go to games because he was sick. Because this was a father figure for Jordan after his father had died. And he was always like his right-hand man, the guy he would talk to before every game. And kind of do everything with, even off like the court. They played golf a few times. And obviously, they played dice a lot together. So, 
this was somebody Jordan can talk to. And I mean, that was just one of the realest scenes like to me in the entire documentary, just saying, you know, it sucks when you develop such a close relationship with someone. And it's one of those things like you don't know how much something means to you till it's gone. But it was nice um, that they were able uh, to bond for each other, especially at great times for Jordan. And um, I think it was just very cool, especially all the bodyguards. It just seemed like fun guys to hang with. And you got to give credit kind of to Gus Slut to kind of be stepping up into that situation with Michael Jordan. I mean, he's a guy who de- deserves so many people's respect. I mean, kind of filling in on that father position that uh, Jordan kind of lost when his father was murdered and stuff like that. But when you see kind of the pain that Michael Jordan had to go through again with Gus Slut uh, dying from uh, lung cancer, you always just got to feel for Michael Jordan. I mean, all the hardships that he's had to go through up until that point. I mean, your heart just kind of breaks for that because you realize you've, I mean, you've felt that loss and stuff to see that guy go through uh, two of those when he has such a strong connection with those men. It's just hard to see. Yeah, and we we saw, like, especially with Jordan, with his father, especially winning the three championships, his father was always by his side when he was having all these situations where he would have, like, these breakdowns or just – you know, life happens and you need somebody there to crutch you. And that was always his father before he had passed away. And then when Gus came into the scene and kind of picked that father role for Jordan, it was just it was just absolutely huge because a lot of people like didn't really know the inside of Jordan. They saw him as a basketball machine. He was pretty much like a like a Terminator. He was ready to kill another team and beat them just to a pulp, it seemed like. But then when you kind of see like especially with all of these documentaries about these athletes, we kind of see the inner the inner side, the more um, behind the scenes with their lives as like it may not be as perceived from the outside media and everything like that. And like Gus was an absolutely huge part of that, being there when or when Jordan needed him throughout like all of his emotional breakdowns or whatever it may be. And I mean, he was his go-to guy. I mean, Jordan would get swamped by media. And he would never have to be the bad guy in this situation. Gus was always there to to make sure everything was under control and make sure Michael was okay, not like getting swamped by all the media people and whatever. But yeah, Gus was a huge, huge part of Jordan's life and really was the one that kind of held Jordan together throughout that that third three P with the mental side that can often take a toll on the physical side of basketball. Yeah, and he was excited because they 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 go back after talking about Gusslet. They go back to where they originally start with the docu- the episode of them being in the Eastern Conference Finals, like the game, like seven or whatever. And then they give him the game ball of that game seven, which was I thought was super nice uh, because like Gus is like kind of a sweet old man, you know. Especially he's rattled after chemo. Um, you know, and I think the the person at the time who was filming wanted to ask him questions, and you know, which is very important at this time. I that was another thing that popped in my head watching this is how do they have all these angles of people? Like they must have had a ton of cameras because you know they've had all these times where Jerry Krause uh, start at the start of this documentary that Jerry Krause was sitting there in the crowd and they were watching him, um, like just other storylines. They would have all these cameras just pointed yeah. at people who were significant, you know, in the storyline. Uh, that was the thing that kind of jumped out to me of saying like, oh, um, you know, how do you have all these cameras for all these storylines? Because who, why in the world would there be a video camera just on Gus Lett? Like, yes, he was the bodyguard, like the head bodyguard of the <laughs> Stiff Brothers, but how, how was, um, like, how was that a main factor? 
But I, that, I thought that was a great way to end the episode. And uh, we can move on to episode 10 where they start back up basically with like the following year. They're with the Utah Jazz or against the Utah Jazz again in the NBA Finals. And, um, you know, they the, the announcers are saying, you know, this Utah Jazz team is better than ever. And uh, they're coming back with a vengeance. Definitely. I think this was a year a lot of people thought Jordan could possibly lose in the finals because they both finished 62-20, and 20, but the Jazz had the home court advantage because they beat uh, the Bulls twice during the season. So a lot of people thought because Carl Malone, obviously second all-time scoring, Stockton leading the league again in assists. So they just thought the Bulls were beat up because they just went seven games with kind of like uh, a pretty decent Pacers team. So And plus, Scotty was hurt, so it was kind of like, Jordan trying to lead the way. Then the series starts off with them losing game one. A lot of people are starting to think, is this the break of the Bulls? Like, mm -hmm. are they finally going to crumble? So the way how the series started uh, versus ended was just an incredible storyline. And I do think even though both series went six games in 97 and 98, the 98 series was just more, I just feel like more competitive. It felt like a seven-game series with every game, how close it was, besides one blowout game. And it was just a, a really good one. And, I mean, it was a testament to Jordan's legacy. I think this episode uh, really just kind of encapsulated the whole Last Dance, the documentary. It was really cool to watch. But, I mean, you said, Travis, how a lot of people thought that this was going to be the finals, that Michael Jordan was going to lose. He wasn't going to be able to kind of pull off the last three-peat. I mean, I we've seen before all those doubters just give just add fuel to the fire for Michael Jordan's competitiveness. And then, I mean, he hears that. You definitely can tell as soon as the first one came in and that kind of stream of uh, doubts came kind of flooding in and the dam broke. That's just kind of when everything kind of turned. And you can tell Michael Jordan just kind of turned on at that point and just wanted to prove everyone wrong. Absolutely. And this Jazz team, like, they were they were an incredible team at the time. I mean, they were first in offensive efficiency in that season. They were third in point scoring. They averaged over 100 points, and they never scored nearly that many at all in any of the finals games and even dropped a 54-pointer in their blowout loss in game three, which was kind of one of the cool parts where um, they had um, – the coach say, or uh, Jerry Sloan, I just remembered him, but he was looking at the box score saying, whoa, wait, this isn't the real score. We didn't, we didn't lose that yeah. bad, but yeah, <laughs> 96 to 54 is not a yeah. score you want to remember. But I mean, besides that game, I mean, it was at the United Center. You can kind of feel a little bit like not ringing on your home court. The first game at the United Center, it was game three where like they had a huge momentum roll after winning game one and they almost pulled it out in game two, but MJ kind of had to pull the cards out of that one and tie up the series. But, I, I mean, it was incredible, just a testament. Like, the, the Chicago Bulls were such a great team, also defensively, that a lot of people didn't see. I mean, this offense for the Jazz was pretty much as elite as can be, like third in offensive categories most part, all top three. This team was very, very good. They played very efficiently. They didn't really use a lot of, like, pace or anything. They just really knew how to execute all of their play, all their plays in their playbook, using Carl Malone and John Stockton and Jeff Hornacek to their absolute highest ability. But the Bulls' defense did everything they could. They're they're giving all the Jazz players fits um, on the defensive side. They're forcing them to 85 less point games. I mean, the Bulls did a great job defensively, and even leading into the next part, I think you're trying to talk about Barrett with Dennis Rodman, how he kind of turned it up a little bit in that defensive on Carl Malone, especially with all the the praise coming his way. That of course Michael had to just uh, yeah, no, he's gonna he's gonna get beat too. So 
But, I mean, just this team defensively, too, is really something that's overlooked because this Jazz team was one of the best offensive teams in this era, but the Bulls did everything they could to slow them down. It might not have resulted in a W, but they definitely did their best defensively. Yeah, and Phil Jackson even says in one of the, I don't know, I don't think it's the clinching game, but it is the game two or one where they talk about how potent the offense is. Um, you know, even a little bit in episode nine where they talk about how this team really likes to run. Um, you know, they don't. You know, you mentioned they don't do the so much space. Or I'm sorry, so much pace. But when they were in transition, they were hitting like every every bucket in transition. So you know, yeah. having Carl Malone and having probably one of the best passers in the game uh with Stockton definitely helps you in that regard um if you want to move on to like the clinching game where Scottie Pippen has the you know the back problem and you know there's yeah. quotes I know I have the quote from Chip Schaefer who is the trainer at the time saying you know anyone saying the notion that Scottie Pippen is a soft player is you know an idiot or you know it's wrong I don't know man we definitely Watched throughout this whole thing about, you know, Jordan needs him and Scotty has a migraine. Um, you know, there's other time like there's other examples, you know, this one too, you know, I I get the whole back thing. Um and there was just times where like he would just you know, Jordan would really need him, you know, number two. You know, Robin wasn't like at that time, you know, during the migraine thing. I get that he's not soft and the chip like chip says, you know, oh he's you no know, that's kind of a bad notion to put on him. I don't know. I think he's kind of soft. I don't know if it's just like his face. I don't know if that's bad for me to say, <laughs> but like something about his face like makes me seem like he's just like kind of whining. I don't even know how to explain that, but like, you know, him like looking down, like stuff like that. I don't know why th- like maybe that's out of line for me to say, but I mean he kind of like you know, we know in the end Jordan turns it on and like he gets the you know game winning shot over Russell. But like in the in this documentary that like Pippen was just kind of soft for MJ. No, Bear, you honestly hit the head on the nose. And before I jump to my point about that, I want to talk about how Dennis Rodman literally went to a WWE event during the NBA Finals. He literally like genius marketing move because he made some money off of it, but. He just literally was doing different things partying while the finals was going on, the most important series in the NBA. So I thought that was hilarious. And he was still able to come out there and perform. But back to the Scottie Pippen point, you are completely right. Scotty, I argue with my friends about this from home all the time. He was just completely soft. The migraine game in games, you just so happen to get a migraine in game seven. Then 94, you, you don't, you take yourself out the game because. Uh, Phil Jackson sees that Cool Coach has like um a better shot. Yeah. Then like I mean weak. then like his it is what I'm saying. It's just weak and it's just like soft. It's just like then he only scores eight points in game six of the game we're talking about in the ninety eight finals. Jordan literally has to score forty five points while the rest of the team has forty two. So he has to like literally carry the team and it's really a testament, especially with the shot over Brian Russell. Jordan doesn't hit that and they lose that game. They possibly probably lose Game Seven because Scotty, I don't think goes because he was limited to eight points and he was his playing time was limited because he couldn't really he dunked the ball and he like felt something in his back. So I agree with you, Barry. That was, I mean, he was just soft. He's lucky he had Jordan. It's uh, I agree with you guys, but like it's Scotty, you can definitely tell he is kind of getting sick of being a secondary character throughout this whole dynasty. I mean, for him, I mean, with Rodman. 
he's just a wild card. Like he just does whatever he wants. So he's kind of getting his own attention on that side. Right. Like you said, with a WWE match and whatever, <laughs> you know, he's kind of to the side with Jordan because Jordan's the best player in the game. But then when you get down to it, I mean, with, I think he was just trying to, I mean, I have no doubt that he probably hurt his back a little bit, but I feel like he was over-exaggerating it just so maybe he could get like attention or like if he would like, get something going for himself and he would maybe get like, thing in return or something like that. But, I mean, I just feel like he was kind of getting tired of being that secondary character uh, throughout the whole dynasty. Yeah, the the health issues with Scotty was always kind of you were wondering why why all these things were escalating so much. Because, I mean, I mean, after that dunk when he had tweaked his back, I mean, obviously you knew something was wrong, and we won't really know if it was a little twinge in back or maybe even, like, he could have herniated a disc or something. Like, we, we don't know because we, we've never really – truly heard what happened that we just know that he was pretty much not his full not himself not his full self on the floor where he's just kind of being more of a decoy um down the down the floor he said they asked him like were you trying to be a decoy throughout like the last half of the game he's like i'm i'm pretty much always a decoy with jordan in the yeah, game so that was a big that was a big quote yeah. i was just like, I don't, you don't really know why, why he would say something like that, I guess, because he, he kind of felt like he obviously wanted a little bit more attention, and he, he pretty much got it when he was ended up going to Portland later on in his career when he got all the yeah, pain. Guy. But, I mean, going back to Dennis Rodman, I mean, the quote that stuck out to me by far the most to Dennis Rodman was the Chuck Daly quote that said, don't tame a wild Mustang because he was always doing the same thing. And as crazy as it was, it's – it works every single time. I mean, he yeah. ends up taking vacation to Vegas for over five days. He comes back. He's same old Dennis Rodman. I mean, he ends up going to WWE in Auburn Hills at the Palace, which mm-hmm. is not close to Utah, and ends up going do this right afterwards. And then he comes back in Game Four and has one of the best performances. Hit two clutch free throws to end up to that win in Game Three, or sorry, Game Four. Where it's just kind of like you, you're kind of like, wait, this is not how the NBA is now. You don't see guys like doing this crazy stuff. I mean, maybe if you're on like the All Star break or you got like a five day break or something, you're not seeing it in the finals of the biggest, like pretty much the biggest series of your whole dynasty to go for the repeat, repeat. It's just crazy to see it, and it was, it's really interesting to learn the personalities and the characters of these guys that were really playing, not necessarily like. For the Bulls, but playing for what they quoted as Jordan's team, where they were very secondary roles. And you kind of see, I mean, you could say that a little bit that Pippen might have wanted more attention and over exaggerated. That's fair. Rodman wanted his attention off the floor, so he was a little more popular. That's fair. Because I mean, Michael Jordan was larger than life at that point. And the city of Chicago pretty much praised him. He was this global phenomenon. And he ends up leading to the quote from David Stern saying, like how him and his team and his era end up leading to worldwide NBA basketball that we see today. But it's just really interesting to see all of these characters pan out, especially in docuseries like this. Yeah. And you, going back to your point about Robin going to, uh, it's just totally skipped my mind. Uh, it's why I didn't talk about yeah. it. Um, <laughs> You're fine. Him, I had to bring it yeah, up. Yeah. Him like going there. Um, that's kind of similar. You know, MJ talked about it when he first went to Las Vegas, when he needed his, vacation his escape i guess you can make the argument this is kind of the same thing because you know they talk about how in the indian run he runs full sprint you know it takes him three laps for him to catch him 
he comes back in game four, right? Yeah, game four to have like the the ultimate defensive stand and then hitting the you know the two free throws. I guess it's just you know guys are different, like coached differently throughout like the league. Uh, I think something like this, so you're right, would never happen in the NBA. I think now, I think people try to just are very low key about what they try to do, uh, despite oh, the yeah. media. But then you know after they they finally win this championship, um, then comes like the big problem of them you know of Kraus and Jackson basically not wanting to work together unless I'm jumping the gun on something else. Oh, no, you're fine. And the only thing I was going to say was everybody loves to say it was a push-off. Brian Russell, oh. when you literally look at the video, he is already oh. slipped. He is literally yeah, he's already slipping. slipping. It's, it's, yeah. just, it's just the greatest play in NBA history. And the pose at the end when he hits the shot is just mm-hmm. one of the greatest things in history. But to your point about the um, crossing, after they win – you know, six ch- championships in eight years, you know, it's amazing. Jordan goes in the locker room. He has this famous quote, they can't win till we quit. You know, we don't care what they say. Mm-hmm. So they're just enjoying it. Then, um, you know, it comes a time. Obviously, everybody knew it was Jerry, it was Phil Jackson's last season from what Jerry Krause said. But Jerry Reinstock, who's owner in a higher position than Krause, he said, I know what Krause said. You know, he's an idiot. Don't listen to him. You can come back one more year if you want to because, you know, that's, that's six championships. And Phil Jackson declined it. And I – I just feel I understand where Mike is coming from. You guys could have went for seven because Phil could have signed one more uh, one year deal. Scotty would have resigned. Jordan, all of them could have took pay cuts. Rodman, I just think I, it could have easily. I don't know if I think could have. The, the, the only one was getting high pay was Jordan was getting thirty three million. Everyone right. else was getting six or under. So all you really just need Jordan to take a pay cut because everyone else is getting a yeah, stimulus but check. Was basically, MJ the go and he knew he was a go. Like he knew he had all this leverage. Was he really going to take a pay cut? I if I was playing at the caliber of MJ, um, like. I don't think I'd be taking a pay cut, especially after winning six six rings. I oh, yeah. get, and, and I get the them MVP. trying to yeah, I get him trying to come back. I mean, Jackson even says in the in the docu series that he says, you know, I didn't want to work with Kraus anymore. And rightly so. Yeah. Um I mean the the guy yeah, was a great GM, but I think he wasn't really a nice it wasn't really a nice guy to be around. Yeah, you can't tell somebody I'm gonna let you guys jump in real quick. It's just no, you can't it's tell somebody good, you can go eighty two and oh then you know, and basically win the championship. And he goes sixty-two and twenty and wins his sixth championship. Then it's like, yeah, uh, maybe bold. I was wrong. That's bold. It's like you think this is a guy who never lost in the NBA Finals uh, to that point, and he was just winning. Yes, he had the greatest player, but they also went fifty-five and twenty-seven without Jordan. So he showed you he could still be a formidable team even without the goat. So it just doesn't make any sense what Kraus was doing at the time, even though he is a great GM. I give him all the props in the world for still getting six championships. But one thing I don't when, when I think about it. Jordan and them are honestly lucky they didn't come back. Because one thing Jordan doesn't realize is you guys went seven games with the Pacers and you're one jump shot away from losing to the Jazz. So really history would have been different. Because say you come back in 99 and you lose. Are you still – some people look at you different. So your legacy is undefeated as Carl Malone's calling me because, you know. But um, your legacy is undefeated and you still leave that. that. <laughs> and that's my uh, point. I mean, even for Phil Jackson, even if he did come back, it would have been probably <clears> – <throat> One of the biggest character moves by him because I don't know if I was in that position and I was being told the year before, like, hey, no matter what, you're getting you're not coming back next year. And then you the chance to kind of – I mean, you kind of get the chance to shove it into Jerry Cross's face that you're back the next year. But, I mean, 
Phil Jackson would probably come into work every day and to see Jerry Krause, the guy who didn't want him there, you know, or just that said, hey, like, you're going to be gone after this year. It was probably hard. So I think that's probably one of the main reasons why. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of guys, I mean, they probably knew that Jerry Krause said that to Phil Jackson and that they knew that no matter what, it was going to be Phil Jackson's last year. And I think that's kind of why a lot of the guys didn't want to – or that Phil Jackson didn't want to come back, and that's probably why a lot of the guys didn't want to come back either. Yeah, and I might ramble here, guys, so if you want to jump in, please do. But first of all, the, the push-off, I completely agree, was not a push-off. I might I might sign a little scientific here, but if you watch the film where Jordan's hand is pretty much on Brian Russell's thigh or whatever, he his hands are not – like, if you're going to push off somebody, wouldn't you agree you would push them off with your whole hand because that's going to generate the most force to get them out of the way? Where Jordan's, he's only got fingertips. I don't know how you can push a dude out of the way with fingertip. And Brian Russell's literally trying to, like, just like MJ said, he was a jumpy player. He was aggressive. The dude's, like, running to keep with him. He's already falling over at that point. It's it's just bogus. There was no push-off there. And (laughs) second of all, I mean, with Jordan's, like, with his reputation on the line going for seven, I mean, if you, I mean, going with, or let me jump to Phil Jackson really quick. Like, he said... It was a good time to go, and it was the point where he was ex- where I mean Jerry Reinsdorf said, "Hey, you want to come back for seven? I mean, we're gonna make that happen. I don't care what Jerry says. I mean, because he's the owner, he has the, he has the ownership to do that. But I mean, Phil kind of said, "Well, you know, he's the guy that gave me here in the first place. I don't really want to have to deal with all the stuff that's gonna be outside, especially from Jerry if I'm coming back." And the notion from Jerry was that it was pretty much. Everybody was in their prime. That's what the whole management was. We're gonna, we're not gonna have the same team. We're gonna have to start rebuilding. And it was like, but I mean, MJ made a great point. Is if if they would have gave Phil Jackson, he would have tried to come back. He would have got Rodman to come back. But I mean, if they wanted to get Scotty back, those guys were gonna have to cough up some money because he was ready to go because of that management situation that we saw, especially I believe in the '92 season where he was going after Jerry Krause after all the, the things that were said between those two on the bus and whatever. But, I mean, they would have had to give Pip some money. And, like, that's like what MJ said is they needed to really – Pip was going to be the hard one to bring back because of that situation. Because, I mean, Dennis would have been like, oh, one more year? Sure. Uh, uh, what, what the heck? That's because that was his personality. But it's just one of the things, like, you can kind of take from this is the last dance. Phil just had the moment where it's like, all right, this is the last year. This ended the but like the best way possible. You see him on the the on the bus where he's like, "This is the greatest thing that could have happened." Like he was pretty much like, "I'm satisfied. This is exactly how I kind of wanted this to end." And then when you kind of like, "Oh wait, I I've already had these plans now for pretty much like eight months that this is my last year, and then you give me another chance to come back after all this just glory that just happened." It's like that's kind of it, it. Wouldn't have been like the same, especially if they do end up playing some of the hot teams at the time. I mean, the Lakers are starting to come up as well. The Jazz were obviously going to get better. These teams are all going to get better, and the Bulls were kind of more at that that moment where they were kind of starting to get more vulnerable, just like you said, Travis. I mean, the Pacers almost beat them. The Jazz almost beat them. It's just to the point where you kind of are glad this is the way it ended because, I mean, if MJ ends up losing in the finals or whatever, 6-0 and looks a lot different than 6-1 and on paper. Yes, and Brandon, I'm so happy you bring up the Phil Jackson plans point because – one thing I got to give Phil Jackson is just he had the greatest finesse in the history of the NBA. You go from Jordan and Scottie Pippen, six championships, oh, yeah. <laughs> to go to Shaq and Kobe and win three straight championships within the span of a year. It's just 
incredible how him and Tex Winter were able to work that out. So I do think he had something behind the scenes. And I agree, like, Jordan's legacy would have been different. But, Jackson, we already had your mind clear. I understand. I do think Krause maybe made those opinions knowing they might not win a championship. Even though we are that great, we, we could lose. And it would just make it easier if we do lose to get rid of Phil. But since they won and it was another three-peat, it was like, yeah, but I, I'm happy for Phil. He got the last word and he was able to go the way how he wanted to go and was able to win five more championships afterwards. Yeah, and going to going back to your point, Brandon, about how you know could the team come back? Um, obviously, money was the issue. Management was the issue. I I know people say some of them were in prime, they're in their prime, but I think durability was kind of a bigger issue. You know, Robin has only played thirty five games through that that season. They won the championship. I mean, you have some other guys that were you know not over the hill, but they were getting to that point. Um, I know he said stuff like I mean, that. I, go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, like Pippen, for sure. Like, how many years has he been in an injury right. situation right. before this? Too, it's he. His health is definitely in concern as well. Right, and definitely. to go on your point, Travis, about Phil Jackson, um, pro move. That's a pro gamer move where you absolutely go from a dynasty, <laughs> a dynasty in Chicago, and then you go to LA where you have two great players, and you're able to win. You know, as you mentioned, a couple championships. So. I think it all worked out for Phil Jackson. Obviously, you know, we're we know about how uh, he goes to the Knicks and doesn't have too good of a, a time. But uh, yeah, everything worked out. There, Barrett. Uh, yeah, definitely the Knicks weren't uh, as Stephen A would like to call. Yeah, my uh, my apologies. We have the police be... showing up here. So, <laughs> so <laughs> oh no, it's, uh, it's my fault. <laughs> no, but no, but definitely, Barry, you make a great point, and uh, I mean. He's a better coach than, than you definitely don't want him in the front office, Phil Jackson. Nobody does after, you know, all the things he's doing with the New York Knicks. But definitely yeah. he had a great uh, – Scotty Pippen had, you know, a good, you know, stint with the Portland Trailblazers making uh, the conference finals, almost making it back to the finals. Obviously, we know Jordan's two years in Washington. Robin only goes on to play, I believe, just one more year with actually the Lakers in 99. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of all over the place. But um, it was great the way how it ended. And if I was Jordan – I know he always uh, – he was telling Michael Wilbon, like, I really am not satisfied with six. No, we could have won more. But honestly, you ended it the best way yeah. in the history of life. Every kid grows up in their driveway or whatever sport they're playing wanting to get a game-winning hit, throw a game-winning touch or hit a game-winning shot to end their career. Who doesn't want to – you literally made them fall and hit the shot, you know? Yeah, you don't want to end on a failure. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. So, like, yeah. you, and you're the one who won the championship. So, if I was him, I would be content with six. No, I would watch the highlight all the time. No, but, um, you know, just – I think the way how it ended was good, and you guys are right. Management, um, you guys, you make a good point about the money. You're probably right. Jordan wouldn't have taken a pick after winning an MVP and Finals MVP and scoring title. It would have just been too much. So it was the right timing, especially winning a championship. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of see, uh, he wanted more, but I mean, for me and for a lot of fans, we don't want to see that. I mean, like, there's comparisons. Like, I mean, you can have your you're going to have your thoughts with, like, LeBron versus Michael Jordan, like, who's better and stuff like that. And there's always the argument that, like, 6-0 is way better than LeBron's 3-6. and six. Um, And, I mean, when you look at that, like you said, Brandon, there could have been a blemish on there wouldn't have been 6-1. and one, And we, there could have been a whole different argument on who would have been the best player uh, to ever play the game, like, in, in the playoffs. But, I mean, when you really look at it, for fans, we really appreciate the amount of effort and the success that they had for the Bulls in that dynasty when they went 6-0 and 
But, I mean, when you just kind of look in hindsight, like, what could have been? Do you think that there could have been different opinions, whether if you went back for that seventh season and then they would have lost, or what would have happened? Yeah, yes. absolutely. And just kind of looking, like, obviously we're ahead in history right now, but if you were, like, the, the management and you kind of – you had, like, this crystal ball, you could see, like, 20 seasons down the road where we pretty much are today or close to it, that you're pretty much not going to be in contention for this long and just really not having a very good rebuild, which you might have had that consideration to bring those guys back for one year. I feel like they definitely would, knowing 20 years down the road that they weren't going to win a championship, let alone get pretty much to a finals if it wasn't for Derrick Rose. But, I mean, the big, the big thing is, like, it's just one of the things we all see now is, like, do do this does this happen if we change history does Jordan go on and win a seventh with the Bulls or whatever it may be I I mean they would have had to play the Lakers they would have had to yeah. play the Jazz they would have to play all these tough teams and it could have been one of the the most like possible well, like they had there's a lot of teams that we could put in like as a great challenger for the Bulls compared to some of the previous years I mean really like going back to like 91 and 90 or 91 and 90 it's like yeah, it's going to be them against the the bad or the bad boys. Whoever wins, is pretty much going to win it. Like, it's not the same now when you go on to like 98, 99. They end up having the Lakers, the Jazz, and then you got the Spurs, who, who won the championship. Who won the championship in ninety nine with Steve Kerr, who also pulled a pretty nice finesse there. But it's just kind of one of those situations where you're like, do we change it? Do we not? I mean, if you're the management, you see twenty years down the road the success that the Bulls have now. I mean, I would say you'd have to go for a seven because it doesn't look too pretty in the future. But, I mean, at the same time, it's like the last dance, they had it all in their minds. This was the this was the end. We did what we wanted to. It ended peacefully. Let's just break it up now and not have it sour, especially with the nice little um, tribute they had in Bill's office where they, they talked about all their emotions to the team, the connections, and kind of just left it all there. And it was a nice – it was pretty much – it was like the perfect ending. It wasn't just like – they all got broke up because of management problems and whatever it was. And pretty much the dynasty was just pretty much cut in half due to all the, the disputes going on and whatever, but pretty much ended the best way it could. And that's pretty much what we see now. And just, we got to be thankful because it could have ended a lot worse than it, it ended up being. Yeah. And you mentioned like the emotional connection. I think everything, the, the dynasty ended naturally. I think it wasn't, like you said, there was some disputes, but it wasn't, I just think Father Time was catching up to some of these guys. Um, you know, money wise, no one was going to shell out the cash to keep all these guys around. Uh, you're right, Kerr did do a good job of winning the championship uh, mm -hmm. after not being with Michael. Uh, so maybe the whole story was true that he had to bail Michael out. Um, <laughs> the the final thing I'll add on this, uh, I have dinner in the oven. So the final thing I had <laughs> I'll add on this is that I am very thankful that we got to see this docu series. I have always been a big fan of 30 for 30s, um, stuff similar to that. I think Michael Jordan wasn't really a polarizing figure in you know today's time or even back when, but for them to be um, you know, showcasing what had happened during these dynasties, I think it was important for people to see, especially kids younger than us who never got to see. I mean, we didn't get to see him, but we were able to – you know, we heard about MJ. I mean, we've seen MJ, not when he was really with the Bulls, but, you know, his <clears throat> other times. Um, but, you know, for kids growing up now, for them to, you know, they're big LeBron people. I mean, that's the guy who's at the forefront right now 
uh, or Curry, you know, not not saying like the same level. You know what I mean? Just the icon, yeah. the icon uh, yeah, yeah. level. Um, but I, I think it was important for ESPN to put this out, especially during a time of there is no sports. I mean, there is sports coming back today, but when that first came out a few weeks ago, um, you know, there was nothing going on. And I think this filled a void in America because as much as people don't like to really mix politics or sports or, you know, the outside world with sports, I think sports brings us together as a whole. Um, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. I think if you're rooting for your own team, um, you know, it makes everything feel it makes everything feel right in the world. Um, and that's my final piece on this whole last dance. My final piece is it was a great documentary. I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan. I believe he is the greatest basketball player to ever play. I know some people, like you said, young millennials like us are going to, some other people might say LeBron. I just think this documentary showed it. And it was just overall great. Like you said, Barrett, the timing by Jordan was really good to drop it during. Obviously, when nobody has nothing else to do. And it was just a great thing to watch. And uh, thankfully, thank God, NBA is officially back uh, July 31st. It was a great uh, 10-part series we did, guys. Yeah, I'm really glad that we were able to kind of get this going with all of us. I mean, hopefully we can do some more collabs in the future. Mm -hmm. This is a lot of fun. But, I mean, last dance, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I mean, kind of tuning in every Sunday. And uh, just kind of the way that they structured it, where they didn't really – how some documentaries kind of do it every night and then, like, they kind of builds, But to kind of make it last for like, basically as long as quarantine lasted – uh, for these five weeks and kind of make it so like you have that suspense building up to Sunday was just a really good tactic by them to kind of gain interest. And I mean, for me, I was just really excited for every Sunday night to watch these episodes, but I mean, absolute masterclass of, uh, of a docuseries. I loved it so much, but glad that it came out when it did. For sure. And credit to everybody that put this whole thing together. I thought it was really, really well done. And a lot of people were like how this was all like, matted and shaped how they kind of jump back and forth. I actually really enjoyed it because it kind of was you kind of got to see oh when are these players introduced then introduce them I thought that was kind of a, a really cool method they did and it was all revolved around the last dance which was really really good and I mean you we're, we're thankful that ESPN put this out much in, in advance due to the time that we're in with the coronavirus and quarantine now well not not really now as the order has been lifted in Michigan but during that time it, it was it was Really, really well needed, um, something to look forward to every week as we've pretty much been at home for a lot of those days. And it was just really well put together. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a big guy into like uh, the video putting or video or videography, I should say, putting things together. I thought this was really, really beautiful. And it's just something that we can show our kids and all of our friends and be like, you don't know who Michael Jordan is. You are missing out. And pretty much it's just something that – you can just say this is this is MJ. This this is pretty much him. This is the Bulls dynasty. This is all it. They pretty much put everything together well and just really gave us something really well to watch. So it was very very good. Yeah, it was beautiful. Uh, I loved it, and it was as you guys all said, it was truly needed. Um, so that's our show. MVSP, Brandon and Joe, are you guys? I don't. We'll. Well, everyone will release plans, I guess, after, you know, things are starting to lift up, um, you know, yeah. jobs are coming into play. So we'll see how everything goes. I mean, we don't know what the plans are for if we're going to collaborate throughout the whole summer. I don't 
We'll have to we'll let everyone know about that. Um, but yeah. Travis and I, Mike's and takes, Brandon and Joe, MVSP. You know, I think we're going back down to down to down back to school in the fall. Um, yes, hopefully, thank God. we can go back to our studio and everything will be normal ish. Um, but it it will it will be good. So I'm excited. This was fun, guys. I had a great time. Just like you said, yes, Joe, sir. tuning in. I'm not a binger, so I, I'm totally glad they put it out every week. I'm not a guy who can sit down. I just can't stay still um, just watching a show. So I thought it was Absolutely. good. Uh, is there anything else you guys like to add? I think this is uh, this has been great. Great collab. Thank you guys again, Brandon and Joe. It's mm-hmm. been amazing working with you guys and Barrett. You know, uh, We're going to continue to try mm-hmm. to make everything grow along with you guys. And, you know, it was great. Also, uh, Bulldog Radio, thank you guys for, you know, helping us make all this and uh, giving us something to do.